Well, we saw this morning in those verses there in the second chapter of Corinthians that Paul was introducing this contrast between death and life, between the letter and the spirit, uh, between the old and the new. And it's, it's a controversy that has developed historically in the church, this law-gospel controversy. And it's a controversy, I suspect, that was made um, most pointedly when the notion of dispensationalism uh, came into the church. Dispensationalism basically means that there is an old dispensation and there is a new dispensation. And the old dispensation was God's dealing with his covenant people, the Jewish nation. And he dealt with his covenant people, the Jewish nation, in the moral law, in the ceremonial law, and in the civil law. And the moral, ceremonial, and civil law, as we find in the Old Testament, basically are addressed to the Jewish people, the covenant people. And with the coming of Jesus, the law is done away, and spirit comes. Now, the dispensationalists would say that there will come a day, generally pre-tribulation, that day when the church will be taken off the earth, and what will happen? Well, Jesus will come, and he'll establish then this earthly millennial kingdom wherein the sacrificial system will be revived, and we will now have this thousand years of Christ's reign with the church gone. And then again, it'll go back to the administration of the covenant that was made with Israel at Sinai, and the church will be gone. So back to the old covenant, new covenant gone. Well, we reject that. We reject that. I trust that this evening we'll come to a great appreciation for why we reject this law gospel dichotomy, which it seems as though the Apostle Paul needs to address this. And he needs to address this because these super apostles or these apostles who have come in to Corinth to try to, well, to discredit Paul and his ministry. By doing what? By trying to elevate the law over the gospel, and he deals with that most specifically in Galatians. But he has to deal with that over and over and over again anytime people come in and say, we need to be more faithful to the Old Testament. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by keeping the law. And when we say the law, then it trumps the gospel. And unfortunately, dispensationalists have said, no, the gospel trumps the law. And sometimes I'm afraid even it can creep into the Reformed camp that we don't really appreciate. We don't really appreciate what John MacArthur wrote about lordship salvation. Uh, we just don't really appreciate that. So this evening we're going to be, we're going to be looking at these uh, next verses, verses 7 through 11 of Second. Corinthians chapter 3 in the matter of embracing the new 
because we certainly are called by God to embrace the new covenant. That's what it was all about this morning as we partook of the Lord's Supper. So let me read for us, I'll again read verses 4 through uh, 6 and then 7 through 11. So hear the word of God from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, reading verses 4 through 11. Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit this, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For what is passing away was glorious. For if what is passing away was glorious... What remains is much more glorious. May God indeed write these, his words on our hearts. This word that stands forever. Amen. As I mentioned, this morning we scratched the surface of what Paul wants us to understand between the old and the new administration of the covenant of grace. I think it's important for us to understand that there's one covenant of grace. When did that covenant of grace originate? Well, I trust we all appreciate that the covenant of grace was instituted right after our first parents ate the forbidden fruit. The covenant of grace was instituted by God in the garden after the rebellion of our first parents, after their failure to demonstrate their love for the Lord, their fidelity for the Lord by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only tree in the garden of which they were not allowed to eat. And as the Lord comes graciously to our first parents, comes graciously to our first parents and asks the question, where are you? And then asks the question, what have you done? What is he doing? 
Well, he's calling upon our first parents to confess their sins, that he might be faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse them. But they don't do that. And so what does he do in, in Genesis 3.15? Addressing the serpent of all persons. Addressing the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is the covenant of grace in its seed form. God graciously comes and doesn't eradicate our first parents, but he continues their lives so that he will have a people who will love and serve him. And how will that happen? That will happen by the seed of the woman coming and bruising the head of the serpent as the serpent bruises the heel of the seed of the woman. And we all know how that story plays out. It happens with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find in the life of Jesus, what is Satan doing? He's constantly nipping at his heel. He's constantly trying to stop the progress of Jesus to go to the cross. He doesn't want him to go. He doesn't want him to go. And then when he gets there, what's he do? He wants him to get down off of there. Why? Because God has established the covenant of grace with our first parents and therefore with all those who after them, by the grace of God, come to be children of God. In that covenant of grace, he sends his people, Israel, into Egypt. And what does he do? He calls his covenant people out of Israel and he brings them under the leadership of Moses to where? Well, ultimately to Sinai. And what happens at Sinai? What happens at Sinai beginning in Exodus chapter 20 and going through to chapter 24, what does the Lord do? He gives his law to his people. And the giving of his law to his people there in Exodus chapter 20 begins with that phrase. I, the Lord your God, brought you out of bondage. I, the Lord your God, brought you from slavery to freedom, from death to to life into this wilderness with me but he gives then what we know in the first 17 verses as the moral law but what we forget as he goes on and he talks about the ceremonial law why because he gives the law to demonstrate to his freed children what his character is that they're to demonstrate before a watching world, knowing full well they're going to break. They're not going to keep 
those 10 words faithfully. And therefore, they're going to have to bring what? Animal sacrifices. Because the soul that sins is to die. The wages of sin is death. Just as he didn't destroy our first parents in the garden by killing that animal, he's going to show them that that's the kind of system that now has to go on until the seed of the woman comes to destroy, to crush, to bruise the head of the serpent. But it's in that initiation of the Sinaitica or the Mosaic Covenant that the people of God see the glory of God coming down upon that mountain and the people of God see the glory of God on that mountain such that when Moses comes down off the mountain that glory of God is now shown in his face. Now our text says that glory of God that shone in the face of Moses was a fading glory. Moses' face didn't radiate the rest of his life as a result of that experience that he had with the Lord there on Mount Sinai. As glorious as his face was, it was fading. So already we can see historically that there was something imperfect, if you please, about that glory. Not imperfect in that it had sin in it, but it wasn't complete glory. It wasn't full glory. It was always a fading glory. Nevertheless, when the people of God saw him come down, they say, you speak with us, Moses, and we will hear you. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. This is what the people said when they witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And yet, in chapter 24 and verse 3, they say this. All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. The result of that Mosaic covenant, if you please, was the covenant people of God saying, we will do it. But it's in that 16th verse of that 24th chapter of Exodus that the Lord hands Moses those two tables of stone, those two tablets of stone. And Paul wants to talk about that. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, 
so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? The old administration of the covenant of grace resounded with glory because it's the glorious word of God that is engraved on those tablets of stone. It's the glorious person of God that is depicted by those words on those two tablets of stone. And it is, it is the instruction of the covenant God to his covenant people of how they are to live. Now think about this. If you have been incarcerated for a significant number of years and you've lived under the law of the jail. And there are many, many things that you would want to do, but you couldn't do because you're incarcerated. And now you're liberated. Or think of it this way. Now that you're liberated, what are you going to do? How are you going to want to live? I'm free. I can now do whatever I want. Now, what am I going to want to do? Think back with me to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. What did we do in Genesis chapter 3? We said, I don't want to do what you made me to do, Lord. Right? Therefore, what is the nature of every human being born into this world? What is the predisposition of every human being born into this world? I want to do what I want to do, however I want to do it. You've been incarcerated and now you're set free. I will now be able to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do, and how I want to do it. And what does God say to his liberated people? Woe! Remember who set you free? I'm the one who set you free. I'm your liberator. I'm the one who made you in my image. 
as my image, you are to have no other gods before you. You are to worship me the way I want to be worshipped. You are to talk about me the way I want to be talked about. You are to keep that day that I keep. You are to honor your parents. You are to not murder. You are to not commit adultery. You are to not steal. You are to not bear false witness. You are to not covet. This is the way you're to live as a redeemed people. We'll do it, Lord. We'll do it. But all they have is a tablet of stone on which those words are written. Are they able to keep those words? The Lord knew they wouldn't. So he had the sacrificial system. As long as they were living under the old administration of the covenant of grace, with the glory that God establishes in that covenant by his giving of it, it's fading away. Because the law, when it's only external, brings about death. Because the wages of sin is death, and the law shows us our sin. I have a theory. Do you remember our courtrooms in the United States had the Ten Commandments on the wall? Do you remember? Why were they put there? Well, they were put there because that's the way our founders wanted people to live. And let's think about it for a minute. What would the society in which we live be like if everybody kept the Ten Commandments? That would be remarkable. It would be incredible if, if everyone kept the Ten Commandments. But our forefathers said, we're not going to dictate to the citizens how they're to worship. And because we're not going to dictate to our citizens how they're to worship, we do away with the first four commandments. They're, they're there on the wall, but they really are meaningless. But those next six, we don't want people to be murderers. We don't want people to be adulterers. We don't want people to steal and so forth. We don't want that. But given the depravity of the human nature, without Jesus as the reason for the keeping of the commandments, what have we done? 
Well, it used to be if you were married and you wanted to get a divorce until 1969, you had to prove the infidelity of your spouse. Believe it? 1969, when Governor Reagan set into, wrote into law the Marriage Act that allowed for no, divorce, no fault divorce. You see, when we look at those ten words, dead in our trespasses and sin, they kill. And what happens when I feel killed? I retaliate. And how do I retaliate? I get away. I get rid of the law. I get rid of the commandment. Because that's what the letter does when all it is is external. It brings about the ministry of condemnation. I am condemned if I don't keep the law. Well, I don't want to be condemned. God in his glory gives the law so that we can be the kind of human beings he wants us to be, but we don't want it. Enter the ministry of the Spirit. When does the Spirit enter into the ministry of the gospel? Does the Spirit only show up after what we read in John 16 this morning? Is it not the Spirit of God who brings about genuine repentance in the old administration of the covenant of grace such that I sin, I know I sin, I bring the animal sacrifice as the propitiation for my sin? We sing Psalm 51, don't we? What does David say in Psalm 51? Lord, don't take your spirit from me. You see, the spirit was active in the old administration of the covenant of grace as he brings people faithfully to bringing their sacrifices day after day after day in anticipation. When Israel was living faithfully, she was living faithfully because the spirit of God was at work within her. But Jeremiah, one of the places that it's made very clear as we read this morning in chapter 31 and verses 31 through 34, what does Jeremiah say? There will be a kainos diathekes. And what will be one of the lead proponents of that? the law internalized. And why is it important that the law becomes internalized? Well, you see, it's important because Jesus is the one who says, 
It's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. <laughs> but it's what comes out of your heart. Oh, how I love thy law. I hide it in my heart. Why? Because our hearts are what animate us. A heart of stone only brings forth the deeds of the flesh. A heart of the spirit only brings forth, well, it's to bring forth the fruit of the spirit. It's, a, it's an election year. And during election years, evangelical Christians want to remind us, Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil, for the authority is God's minister to you for good. And so we're to be involved, they say, in this political system that we have here in these United States. As such, we're to vote, I understand, for those who will be faithful ministers of God for good. But let's listen to what Romans 13, 8 and 9 say. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, they are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We live in the new covenant, the new covenant with the fullness of the glory of God that doesn't fade away, but it's forever here in the giving of the Spirit, so that the Spirit of God, who is given to the children of God, such that the Word of God, the law of God, is written upon the hearts of the people of God. The second table of the law. At least that much is demonstrated in our society today. And it's at least that second table of the law that the authorities of God are to recognize as what is good. So that the authorities of God are seeking to ensure that our society gives itself to not committing adultery, not murdering, not stealing, 
not bearing false witness, not coveting, but loving our neighbor as ourself. The law doesn't cause death. The law does condemn. But the law causes the conviction of sin. And with the conviction of sin for the Christian comes the confession of sin. And with the confession of sin comes the forgiveness of sin. And with the forgiveness of sin comes the cleansing of sin. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, how much more, how much more will the new covenant of the Spirit and of righteousness resound with greater glory so that you see the Apostle Paul is telling us the old administration of the covenant of grace passed away the new administration of the covenant of grace has come through the blood of Christ but in the new administration of the covenant of grace we're able to sing the psalms and we're able to sing the psalms with true meaning. We're able to sing Psalm 119. That in the second part says, How shall a young man cleanse his ways? By living in the Spirit? Yes, by living in the Spirit. How do we live in the Spirit? By hiding your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And the beautiful promise of Jeremiah is that God will write the law upon our hearts. Augustine wrote against Pelagius and it is argument against Pelagius. He says of Paul that man through the commandment although it be holy and just and good dies death working him through that which is good, from which death there could be no deliverance unless the Spirit quicken him whom the letter had killed. 
And that summarizes well, it seems, what the Apostle Paul is telling us and encouraging us, therefore, to embrace the new. Let's pray.